You're listening to another great podcast in the MyMac Podcasting Network. Hi folks, and welcome to episode 81 of the Let's Talk Photography podcast. I'm your host, Bart Bouchotts, and this is the show for June 2020. Well, it's a solo show this month, um, just little old me again, and I want to sort of pick up where I left off last time. So in the last installment, I gave you my point of view on the rule of thirds. And I basically said that while it's useful in many situations, it's absolutely positively not a rule. It is in fact a guideline and it is simply one possible way of achieving a nice composition in some situations. What it definitely is not is a universal key to good photographs and absolutely positively by no means do all good photographs obey the rule of thirds. Right? It's a useful tool that is by no means the be-all and the end-all. But it seems to be the photography rule of thumb that has the single best pure firm ever. Um, and it, Maybe it's because it has a catchy name and the other stuff doesn't. So I'm going to give you some other things to bear in mind. And I have done my best to be creative and to give these thoughts names. These are names I've made up. They're not names that are in common use. Um, But I'm hoping that by trying to give them a catchy name, they'll stick in your mind. And really, these are additional tools to put into your toolbox. Um... Many good compositions will use more than one of these rules, and some good compositions will use none of these rules. They're not rules, they're just guidelines again. So, before I dig too deeply, I actually want to take a moment and step right back. So, I'm saying these are guidelines that help you make good compositions. Okay, great, I want a good composition. What is a good composition? So from my point of view, and the definition I'm going to be using in my head while I describe these guidelines, is that a good composition should achieve three things. It should make your photographs catch people's attention. Right? There's so many images all around us in our day-to-day life, we can't possibly pay attention to them all, so the simple fact is some of them catch your eye and some of them don't. Well, a good composition is one that makes the photograph catch your eye. If it doesn't, it isn't. Um, Once the photograph has caught the viewer's eye, the chances are the photographer wanted to achieve something with that image. You know, you as a photographer want to draw the person's attention to something. And in order to do that, your composition is one of your tools to help guide the eye, right? You shouldn't need to think, or a viewer shouldn't need to think when looking at a photograph, where should I be looking? It should be natural. It should be, they should be guided utterly unconsciously so they don't even realize they're being guided and that's the sign of a truly good composition so what the photographer wants is going to really depend from image to image but whatever it is the photographer wants the effect on people should be that and then it's a good composition so sometimes you want to draw people's eye to a very specific thing right the photograph has a single subject and what you want to do is have your composition pull the person's eye to that subject so they see what it is you were trying to show them Sometimes what you actually want to show them isn't a single thing, but maybe it's a pathway, some sort of sequence through the image. You want their eye to follow a given route through the image. And sometimes what you actually want to do is suck them into the world of the image and then leave the viewer to explore. But you you need to suck them in to get them into your world and then give them the freedom to explore. So there are three different things you may want to achieve. But again, 
whatever it is you wanted, if your composition is good, that's what you'll get as the output. And then the final thing I think is very important for a good composition is that it gives a sense of depth because a photograph is an inherently 2D representation of an inherently 3D world. So that means that there is no third dimension. Like it's, it's, it's gone. It was not captured. And yet we want a viewer to feel the third dimension that's gone. And one of the single best tools, not the only tool, but it's certainly a really good tool for achieving that sense of three-dimensionality from an inherently 2D medium, is your composition. Uh, depth of field is one of the good tools, so the, the sense of blurring can really help with the, with the 3D nature. But, you know, we're talking about composition now. So one of the things a good composition can really do is to put back in some of the three-dimensionality that's just inherently evaporated by the act of taking a photograph. So... Let's start by looking at some guidelines that intentionally break the rule of thirds. Because that's, you know, I said it was only a guideline. Okay, fine. Then let's give some countermanding guidelines, some guidelines that completely break the rule of thirds, because that's, you know, fun thing to do to prove the point that it's just a guideline. So my first of these is what I think I mentioned in the last episode, but it's worth repeating. Center your reflections. The ultimate essence of a reflection is symmetry. That's what makes a reflection a reflection. It's symmetric. And so if the reflection isn't, is actually the thing you're trying to capture, right? If you, just because you have an image that contains a reflection doesn't mean it's an image of a reflection. But if you're shooting an image of a reflection, then that sense of symmetry is probably what you're trying to go for. And a really good way to hammer home that sense of symmetry is to put the horizon or the, the, the centre point of the reflection, the point through which the symmetry is happening, put that smack dab in the middle of your image and keep it perfectly level. And the perfectly level thing is uber, triple, mega important if there is water involved in the scene because in the real world, water does not sit at an angle. Water sits level. So if your photograph is of water and the horizon's crooked, that just feels wrong. Right? Water sits level. So if you look at the show notes over at letstashtalk.ie, I have some example photographs to illustrate all of these concepts. And so the first example I have here is a shot I took quite a few years ago of a lake in my native, well, my adopted native not sure that makes any sense, but anyway, bear with me. Cavan, Ireland. Um, this is a lake I would that's on the main road between where I grew up and Dublin City. And usually, it's quite a large lake, usually it's extremely choppy. Uh, but on one day, it was like a mirror. And I could not resist grabbing a photograph. It's these amazing shades of blue. It's taken in the deepest, darkest winter, you know, January 20th, 2014. And the horizon is just smack dab in the middle of the shot with the blue sky above, blue water below, and the lake is the bottom half of the photograph. Yeah. So it is exactly breaking the rule of thirds, completely, 100% and utterly breaking the rule of thirds. Um, another example then I have is in portrait orientation, but it's still a landscape shot. It's of the moon over a very ornate bridge in Carton House near Maynooth, where I now live. And there's a an artificial lake, actually, that runs through the middle of the parkland because it's a constructed landscape. And there's a little footbridge across this little river near the ornate bridge. And so you can stand on the 
utterly, utterly boring footbridge to get a photograph of the Ornate Bridge, which means you can stand in the you appear to be standing in the middle of the water, and then you can get these really cool reflections. And again, Horizon is smack dab in the middle with an oak tree pointing up and another copy of the oak tree pointing down and the arches of the ornate bridge pointing up and another copy of the arches pointing down, the moon in the sky above and the moon in the water below. It's entirely symmetrical around the centre line of the portrait-oriented image. So again, utterly breaks the rule of thirds. Nothing in this image follows the rule of thirds and yet I would argue it is an extremely beautiful image. I certainly really like it. Now... This is a guideline, right? This is my whole point today. These are guidelines, not rules. So one of my absolute favourite photographs from the last year's worth of photography, this the winter just gone, is a reflection taken in the Royal Canal, not in the Royal Canal, um, but again, it's taken from a lock across the canal, so I get to stand in what looks to be the water. And we have a sky above. It's a frosty morning, beautiful early light. The sun hasn't quite risen yet, so we have this sort of the morning golden hour. And there's these amazing, wispy, fine detail clouds, not a puff of wind. So the canal is, is like a mirror and those clouds are mirrored above and below and this beautiful, warm colours of the morning golden hour. And if you measure where the horizon line is, it's not on the rule of thirds and it's not in the centre. It's probably about halfway between the rule of thirds line and the centre line. And it feels right. That's all that matters. Your composition has to feel Right, and so if that were, if putting the horizon dead center feels right, then that's the right thing to do, and it very, very often does. But you don't have to. It, if it doesn't feel right, don't put it there, and it don't feel you have to put it either on the rule of thirds or in the center. Put it where it feels right. So I would say this image feels right. It's not centered. It's not on the rule of thirds. It is a reflection. The other thing that completely countermands the rule of thirds is my advice to center your circles. So if you have something, if, if, if you have a photograph of a single subject and that single subject is circular, then a good approach is to do your best to align yourself perfectly face on so that the circle isn't distorted by the fact that you're looking at it off axis and that it genuinely is round. And then center it smack dab in the middle of your composition. So face on and centered. 100% inverse of the rule of thirds, which is you don't put anything in the middle, boring composition. Yeah, it's not actually true. With a lot of things like flowers, it can be a really powerful, you know, almost in your face composition. Um, the most natural way to use this composition is on a square. It just, a square feels right for something perfectly centered. But you don't, it doesn't only apply to squares. It can apply to anything. Um, and, you know, so any aspect ratio can work. So the first example I have is of a field scabious smack dab centered. It's around flower properly. Smack dab in the middle of a square frame. And the second example I have is of a wooden enemy, which is a beautiful little white flower that grows on the forest floors here in Ireland. And it's in a, I think it's a four by three. It's certainly not a square. And again, they both work really well and they're both really eye-catching um, and they're perfectly centred face on. Um, something I also like to do, which is slightly peeking ahead by one rule of thumb, is if I am going to be shooting something face on, if there is an obvious line leading to the round thing, Pop that line on a diagonal for that little bit of extra oomph. So the third example I have is of a dandelion head, which is a, 
a cylindrical seed head. The great thing about a cylinder is it's always face on. And on one angle you shoot it, it's face on because of the cylinder. Not a cylinder, sorry, a sphere. Goodness me, my math teacher wouldn't be happy with that. The spherical seed head. So I could have put the stem anywhere inside this square frame. But by choosing to align it smack dab along the diagonal, you get an extra bonus bit of power to your composition. So it's a circular subject perfectly centred in a square frame, or close to perfectly centred, with a nice diagonal popping in for bonus. Um, The next thing on my list here of things that pretty much always break the rule of thirds is that it's really important to give room is what I call this tip. Give room. And sort of in inverted commas, what are you giving room to? You're giving room for things to look and or move into. So anything with an obvious front or anything that's obviously moving will feel uncomfortable if you don't give it room to look or move into within your composition. Now, if you're trying to make something uncomfortable, then intentionally stick someone's nose right to the edge of the frame or whatever, right? You can play with these things to get the inverse effect. But anything which has an obvious front, which is looking or moving in a direction, to feel harmonious, to feel comfortable, you need to give it room to look or move into. And this obviously applies to people, but it applies to way more than people, pretty much anything with a front. So flowers, trains, cars, planes, animals, you name it. Lots and lots and lots of things. So I have plenty of example shots in the show notes, let's talk that e again. Um, so the first example I have is of a little butterfly. Now, in this case, this is a good example of where the rule of thirds, you can argue this image kind of meets the rule of thirds because the subject is kind of sort of approximately a third of the way in from the right. But again, the butterfly is lots of room to look into. That same image cropped to a square with the butterfly perfectly centered would not feel comfortable or harmonious. The butterfly is very obviously looking to the left, and so the butterfly is placed to the right, so it has room to look into. Second example, then, is another butterfly, all the way around this time, um, and again, the same basic rule applies. There's a big empty space for the butterfly to look into. Probably... In hindsight, I think I'd probably meant not to put both those examples in, but I don't want to pause the recording, so let's just leave it at that. Next example, then, in the show notes is the same flower I use as my first example of face on, a field scabious, the same purple flower head, but I didn't shoot it face on, which means it isn't a perfect circle. It's now, quote unquote, looking to the right. And therefore, it's not composed in the centre, it's now composed a little bit off left of centre, nowhere near the one-third line. Right? This is not a rule of thirds composition because it's not looking exactly sideways or anything. It's looking a little bit sideways and therefore the amount of room to look into depends on how strongly something is looking sideways or how quickly it seems to be moving. So if it's looking a little bit sideways, it needs a little bit of room. If it's looking very sideways, it needs more room. In this case, the harmonious is sort of falling somewhere about halfway between the rule of thirds line and the centre line. And again, whatever feels right. So do not be constrained by the rule of thirds. Next example is literally a moving train. Um, it's a moving train, and there's a motion blur on that movement to emphasize that movement, so it really is a moving train. So it actually needs a lot of room to look into. So it's pretty close. It's not exactly in the center, but it's actually pretty close to having its nose in the center, but close to, but not quite half the image for it to move into. Again, its sense of speed is quite great, so the amount of room needed is quite great. 
And the last example is an airplane. And this one is flying close to, but not exactly left to right through the shot. It's a little bit towards us. But the fact that it's got such a strong across image motion, you know, it's pointing across the image very strongly. There is much, much, much more room between the nose and the left edge of the frame than between the tail and the right edge. That's that room to move into. So it feels like a harmonious composition. The next tip I have then is to dig those diagonals. So center reflections, center circles, give room, dig those diagonals. All right. Rule of thirds is obsessed with a horizontal grid. Why limit yourself to being horizontal? Why not align your composition against the other really obvious lines you could draw on an empty square or rectangle? That's the lines joining the corners. In other words, another grid you could hypothetically draw is an X. Maybe it should be called the rule of X's. Well, that sounds like a bad dating advice. Let's not do that. So dig those diagonals. Right? Your diagonals are corner to corner across the image, and they can make for very powerful compositions. So having, again, this is why the dandelion example for the centering the circle was extra good, because the stem was going along the diagonal. It was emanating right from the corner and heading up to the center of the image. That's right along that diagonal line. And so a lot of the time, I will take photographs where I intentionally put things, you know, entering the scene at a corner and then pointing towards the opposite corner. It doesn't have to reach all the way. It doesn't even have to reach half the way. But it's pointing along the diagonal. So the diagonal is where the weight of the image lies. The weight of the composition is along one of the four diagonals. Well, two diagonals, I guess, really. Uh, So this is an example of a butterfly perched on a long flower stalk. And so we have a very obvious diagonal. The flower stalk enters on the bottom left. And if you were to continue it on, it would exit at the top right. The butterfly is perched off-center. He's not on a rule of thirds point, but he's not in the center either. And he is looking along the stalk, and he's been given lots of room to look into. So again, we have our multiple guidelines coming together. But again, it's a, the, Im- the weight of that image is very clearly corner to corner. That is a strong diagonal composition. Second example, then, for your strong diagonals, is a little bit more subtle in this case. The diagonal isn't perfect, and diagonals don't have to be perfect. So this is a steam train running through a scene, and the lines, which the train is inevitably on, are exiting right in the bottom left, sorry, the bottom right corner. And the approximate thrust of the image's weight is from that bottom left corner roughly towards the top right. But it's not exact, and it doesn't have to be exact. It's still a strong diagonal feel to this composition. Um... The third example, then, is close to, but not exactly an X. So this is a damselfly perched on a stalk. So we have a strong, it's a a diagonal, but not a perfect diagonal. It's not coming out corner to corner, but it's still very distinctly not horizontal. Is the stalk the damselfly is perched on. And at 90 degrees to it, we have the body of the damselfly, which is a very long, thin insect. And again, this time, its tail is pretty close to pointing at the top left corner and its eyeballs are pretty close to looking at the bottom right corner. Not perfect, but the weight of the image is definitely along that diagonal and then having the other diagonal is a nice bonus extra. Again, the eyes of the insect 
are not at the centre of the non-ruler surge point, they're somewhere they feel comfortable because the little critter needs room to look into, and therefore that's where it felt comfortable. Now, lines are an obvious way to make a diagonal, right? Be they straight or curvy lines, so straight lines in the case of most of the examples we've seen so far, curvy lines in the case of the train, but they don't have to be lines at all. You can simply align the centre points of things along a diagonal to give you a strong composition. So the final example is basically a flower with a butterfly. Now, the weight of the image is very obviously running along that diagonal, but it's not actually an obvious... There's no straight line, but the weight, the centre of the flower is on that diagonal, the centre of the butterfly is on that diagonal, the weight, the feel of the image is running along that diagonal, even though there isn't an obvious line. And so just aligning the weight of your image, for want of a better term, is a really good way to go. Okay, so the next grouping of rules I have are a little bit different. So here, the rules to help you guide your eye. So I said that one of the things you may want to do is to put people's eyes on a single subject or on a journey through an image. And that the other type we'll come to later is where you want to pull people in and then let them wander around and enjoy. This next group of guidelines, rules, whatever you want to call them, is for when you want to really point the eye to a specific thing or a specific sequence of things. And so you're trying to move the eye around. So the first one I have, because I love alliteration, love leading lines. Actually, before I do that, let's just summarize again, right? So in terms of breaking the rule of thirds, center your reflections, center your circles, give room and dig those diagonals. So now let's move on to guiding our eye. So love leading lines, right? A strong, obvious line will direct the viewer's eye. We've seen this already in some of the previous examples, right? That uh, dandelion seed head again, that stalk pulls your eye straight to the centre. Now, arguably, the centre-weighted circular, you know, the, the, the subject being perfectly circular right at the centre of the image is probably enough to pull the eye anyway, but hey, it doesn't help to have a leading line as well, Right? Um, lots and lots and lots of things can act as leading lines. So I had a real hard time trying to find, you know, examples that weren't too numerous. But anyway, the first example I have is of some tire tracks in the snow, right? They're not perfectly straight. They don't have to be perfectly straight. They're very obviously lines. And they start at the center of the image and they just draw your eyes straight up. Whoop, oh, that's where I should be looking. Radio. Um, the possibilities are, of course, endless, but I love using shadows for this. So in Ireland in the winter, the sun is very low in the sky for pretty much our entire day, and the shadows are really, really obvious. And if you try to ignore them from your composition, it's impossible. They just take it over. So work with them is my general advice. And I love using shadows as leading lines. So you, in this case, we have long shadows of a tree, and they just point the eye straight into the, you know, the beautiful architecture in the distance. Shadows make good leading lines. Uh, also, in the summertime, when people mow lawns, lawnmowers very often put lines into lawns. And so you can achieve a nice similar effect with the lines from a lawnmower. Again, it's the same building in this second example, but taken at a different time of the year. No shadows because it's, you know, summer, the sun is high in the sky. But the lawn has been mowed. And so now we have these lovely tracks from the lawnmower to pull the eye, in a gentle sweeping curve in this case, up towards the beautiful buildings. And again, the lines really, really, really do not have to be straight for them to be effective. So the final example I have is of leading S-shaped lines, right? They're, they're curves, very, very distinctive curves, gentle 
pleasing curves, and they point in a roundabout way at the subject, which is a train appearing around a corner in the track. And the train is not very big in the shot, and yet it's still obvious I want you to look there because those S-shaped lines, just they're going to suck your eye towards it. That's where you should be looking. So that's the power of leading lines. And a very, very much related concept is my second suggestion or guideline. Paths pull the eye. Right Now, the reason the example I just gave doesn't fall into the second rule is because the railway tracks start on the left edge of the screen. When I'm saying that paths pull the eye, I mean that the path that you're trying to draw someone along, what I mean with this guideline is the path starts at the bottom of the frame. So on the base of the frame, there is a path and that path goes off into the distance and it pulls you with it. So it has the advantage of guiding the eye extremely effectively. I would almost go as far as say railroading the eye, although you shouldn't be standing on a railroad track. Um, and because this is inevitably going to give a perspective effect, it also has the effect of adding in that third dimension because the path will narrow as it goes into the distance. There's no way it can't. So you get a sense of depth, which is one of the things we're trying to achieve, and you get to steer the eye where you want the eye to be steered. So the first example photograph you'll find in the show notes is of a back road near where I live in Ireland. It's perfectly straight. I stood perfectly in the middle of it. So the road actually takes up the entire base of the frame and it vanishes itself into the distance. And with it will go your eye, dragged along these amazing white wildflowers called cow parsley. They're actually wild relations of the carrot. And you have these beautiful blues and greens of an Irish summer. Well, early summer, spring. So again, that's an example of a path pulling the eye. Second example then is, again, a little more windy this time, but the path starts at the centre of the bottom of the image and, you know, drags the eye past a little tombstone towards a beautiful old church, a place called Glendalock in the Wicklow Mountains, not too far from where I live in Ireland. Very beautiful place. And while straight lines work really well, there's something about a meandering, winding path that just works so much better. And so one of my absolute favourite compositions is a beautiful boathouse in Carton. If you're very observant, you may notice that the bridge is in the left of the image is actually the same bridge shot from the opposite side that I use as my example of one of the reflections. Anyway, what you have is a path making an S-shaped curve through the scene. So the path enters the scene in the bottom of the frame and then it zigzags its way through and it really does pull the eye in towards the boathouse. Now, in this case, the path comes in on a sharp curve and then points you straight at the boathouse and then the path goes off somewhere else, but your eye has actually sort of been catapulted towards the boathouse, which is yoinked to your attention by that point. So the path will serve this purpose even though it then wanders off into the distance in a vague, random direction. So when it comes to moving the eye about, really... It comes down to just two guidelines. Love, leading lines, and paths pull the eye. So the next group I have then is about the situation where you're not trying to pull the eye at specific things. You're trying to pull the eye into the scene and then let you wander around within that scene, which largely means landscape type photographs. I find those really hard to do. Um, so you're trying to capture not a not a specific subject, but a sense of place. And so you want to give a feeling of the place. And to me, I like to have that include things at multiple scales. 
So, you know, small things, the be the mid, you know, the sort of the, the the shape of the part of the landscape as a whole, and then maybe a bigger picture. So, a flower, a field, and a field pattern, you know, that kind of a thing. I, sort of, you know, multiple scales tends to feel good. Anyway, my because I find it so challenging to get a, an interesting landscape. It's really easy to shoot a boring landscape. You're there in person. It looks amazing. You take a photograph. It looks terrible. Not interesting. Not exciting. The real place was amazing. Your photograph isn't. I find that a very frustrating and b really hard to get around. And the way I have managed to get myself to shoot half decent landscapes is to force myself to think in what I call Bart's three layer rule. I don't think I invented this, but I'm absolutely, absolutely committed to it. It, it works for me. So the three layers rule is: if I want to get, a, if I'm trying to shoot a landscape, I am going out of my way to fill these three criteria. I need an interesting foreground. Criteria one. That can be some sort of artifact, you know, a piece of machinery, a, you know, a thing. It could be a plant. It could be something, you know, a flower, a shrub, a tree, a bush, something in the flora kingdom. It could be an animal, cow, sheep, dog, cat, whatever. It could be some sort of geological feature, a rock, a stream, a pond, a puddle, something geological. Or... Could even be something very abstract, like an interesting texture or even an interestingly shaped shadow. But something in the foreground to give you a sense of near me. The next thing you want is the sort of the main feature of the landscape, the middle ground, the sense of the place you're actually trying to capture. So the rolling hills, a wide expanse of plain, a field, the landscape, basically. So interesting foreground, then the midground is the main event where you're trying to pull people's eye in. And then the final thing you really need to make it work is a nice backdrop, which doesn't have to be on the ground, right? It could be a distant part of the landscape. So you may have, you know, an interesting fieldscape and in the distance, like the Rocky Mountains or something. Well, that distant part of the landscape is a backdrop. It could be as simple as an interesting shaped horizon. Or very often in places like Ireland, it can be an impressive sky. Um. A vast expanse of sky can be an extremely interesting backdrop to a landscape image. So, you know, don't be afraid to count the sky as part of your landscape, for want of a better way of looking at it. So, I have some example shots in the show notes again, less-talk.ie. So, the first example I have is of a place I simply adore, quite close to Maynooth, where I live now. It's called Rathcoffey Castle. It gets to be silhouetted on the top of a hill, which is always nice. And has these lovely rolling Kildare landscape in front of it, big rolling fields. And the, the crops rotate every year, and some years it's grain, but some years it's uh, canola oil, as Americans call it, or rapeseed oil, as we Europeans call it, which is this amazing sea of yellow. And so the middle of the image really is that rolling hills landscape. Then to give it a sense of foreground, we have a hedgerow. Um, which is, in this case, is full of the same white flowers we had in another recent example, the cow parsley. So we have some interesting nature in the foreground. We have our midground, which is this landscape itself. And then as a backdrop, we have a really dramatic sky. Like, what an amazing summer sky. Fluffy white clouds, deep blue sky, gorgeous. Three layers. Foreground, midground, backdrop. Second example, then, again, let's just talk, dot i.e., this time, it's perhaps less traditionally a landscape, but it, it's got the same... We're trying to get a sense of place. 
In this case, the middle is some locals enjoying the playing fields in St. Patrick's College, Manus. So they are the subject, right? A bunch of young lads playing football. But to get the sense of the place, the foreground is actually a nice-shaped shadow. So that gives us a sense of feeling, a sense of anchoring. This is where we are in this landscape. And the background, the third layer, is actually the beautiful historic building. So these guys are playing football between trees and a beautiful piece of architecture. So foreground, midground, background. So three layers, it gets a good sense of the place and a good 3Dness. The remaining guidelines I want to give are actually like helper guidelines to help getting to three layers. So the first of these I call find a frame. So lots of things in nature present themselves. So, so framing your landscape is a way to give that nearest layer and trees in particular make that really easy. Right? So the first example I have is again Rathcoffey Castle, this time as a dramatic monochrome. And there's a tree framing the top and right side of the image, giving us our interesting foreground. Then we have the mid-ground of the rolling fields and the background of the amazing sky. So one, two, three. Hey, presto. Uh, Then, without being too cliche, bridges really, really help you frame things, right? So you can stand under a bridge and look out, which is the second example. So we have a train coming through and we stand under a bridge. Hey, presto, frames the whole thing, you know, gives us... A pleasing composition. In this case, not a landscape, but, you know, the same rule could apply to a landscape. Framing works. And the other way to frame is actually not to stand on the bridge and look out, but you can actually point towards a bridge and sort of look through it, which can make for an interesting photograph too. Again, not a landscape, but, you know, this find a frame rule is bigger than just landscapes. A final example, a final rule is, again, useful in landscapes, but also useful beyond. Go low. So in the real world... You know, I'm a big believer that when they low, when they go low, you go high, right? I, I really, really don't believe the stooping to other people's level. But that's real life. That's not photography. In photography, go low. Why do I say go low? Because we live our lives at head height, right? We spend most of our time standing up and walking around, which means we mostly see the universe from eye height, whatever height we happen to be. I'm about five foot four, no, five at eight. So I tend to see the world from a few inches lower than that. So I'd probably see the world from about five, four. Well, if I get down, I'm now seeing the world from a different point of view, a different perspective. And if I get down a lot, that can be really, really dramatic. So it's simply even just getting down and, you know, taking a knee with your camera, as opposed to as a political statement, that can be enough to make a difference. But if you're prepared to really get grimy for your art, uh, lie flat in your belly, and then you can really get stuck in. So go low. So the first example in the show notes I have is, I, I was lying flat in my belly here, which might explain why some people are giving me arguably slightly odd look. Anyway, go low. In this case, I am lying flat on the ground, and in the foreground are some leaves, there's a path, and then towering up above are beautiful yellow leaf trees in autumn and an amazing sky. So by going low, that's gone from being a fairly plain, you know, avenue of yellow trees to a really eye-catching shot because the sky gets to play an abnormally large role in this composition, as do the trees, because I got low. And you're getting a sense of the place because you have 
the leaves. So you've leaves as small grain texture. You've the avenue as the mid range texture. You know, so it's mid, so small scale, mid scale, and then the sky is this backdrop. So again, we're meeting our criteria for a sense of place, but we're doing it by lying literally flat on my belly, in you know next to the path and the grass. But it's a very arresting composition because it's such a different point of view. Second example is similar, and though in this case I will confess I wasn't lying down. I, there was a bank. I was able to sit on the bank. But again, low. So we're low to the water with a boat making its way along the canal. Now, I could have taken a very boring shot from the towpath, showing you the towpath with the boat next to the towpath. But by getting low, I get to have the wildflowers next to and above the boat. So the boat appears to be coming from behind the wildflowers. Now, if you were to stand up, the wildflowers would be really quite irrelevant in that composition. But by getting low, they're not. They're really dominant and they really help set a sense of place. And I can use flowers to frame a scene because I'm low. If I wasn't low, the flowers couldn't act as a frame. But they can because I got low. Um, and when it comes to landscapes, there's a specific sort of type of getting low I find very, very helpful. Low combined with a wide angle. So the first example of that I have is actually shot with my iPhone, the new iPhone 11 Pro with the wide angle lens. And you don't, you can hunker down and just hold your phone down low with the phone. It's an advantage over DSLR. So by putting the phone down low with a wide angle lens engaged, we can get wild, well, they're not wildflowers, actually they're flower flowers in the foreground, then some football fields in the midground, a big expanse of sky and some nice architecture in the background and also some framing from trees as a bonus. But again, by getting down low, you get a lovely sense of place because we get to have the small scale, the mid scale and the large scale. And then the final example, again, shot on iPhone. Um, this time, oh, was it shot on iPhone? That's a good question. Maybe it wasn't. Maybe I'm... No, it was shot on iPhone. Um, this time, it's getting down low in the grass in autumn. So if I were standing at normal height in autumn, there's a a scattering of leaves, but there are not really that many of them. There wouldn't have been a dramatic foreground. But by getting down low, the leaves become much, much bigger in the scene. So the leaves give a sense of autumn, a sense of place. And then in the midground, we have beautiful architectural St. Patrick's College of News again. In the background, we have our sky again. So by getting down low, I was able to create a foreground interest in a place where there really was none otherwise. So again, go low. It really, really pays to go low. Oh, so very often. So, let's do a final summary, right? Rule of thirds, yeah, it can be useful. Don't feel bound by it. Intentionally break it. It can really help you get a good composition. And remember, a good composition catches people's eye, draws them to the photograph in the first place. Once it has drawn the viewer to the photograph, it then makes them look where you want them to look, be that at a specific thing, at a sequence of things, or just pulled into a landscape you want them to explore. Either way, you as the photographer have guided their eye to where you as the photographer wanted to be. And finally, your composition should restore the sense of 3D-ness that the 2D nature of photographs destroys. So first off, intentionally break the rule of thirds whenever it works. Center your reflections, center your circles, give room for things to look and move into and dig those diagonals. When it comes to moving people's eye around, remember to love your leading lines. Remember that paths pull the eye. And when it comes to your landscapes, try think in terms of Bart's three-layer rule. Interesting foreground mid-ground, backdrop. Helping you get there, find a frame, go low. So hopefully that helps you to think beyond the plain old simplistic rule of thirds. Well, just a reminder, 
sample images are all at lets-talk.ie in the show notes. While you're there, you may notice large blue buttons under a heading, support the show. Does exactly what it says in the tin. Right, This show has no ads because I want to be free to give you my point of view and for you to know that there's no influence on it. That's a little bit important in photography shows. It's really important in the Apple shows. Um, really, really important in the Apple shows. Anyway, if you would like to support the show, it's 100% listener supported. So a great big thank you to all of the listeners who have taken the time to support the show over these many years in many ways. Right? This is a monthly show on episode 81. So we've been around a while. And every single solitary one of you who have even once said to a friend, check out Let's Talk Photography. Thank you. Any one of you who have ever clicked on the Zazzle store and bought some merchandise. Thank you. Any of you who have ever bought a domain using my hover referral link. Thank you. Those of you, and there's quite a few of you actually, who have who are geeky enough to need virtual machines and stuff, who have created their DigitalOcean account and set up some virtual machines and cool things using my referral link. You guys have paid for literally months of hosting of letsashtalk.ie because the way DigitalOcean works is when you spend $50, you get some free credit and I get some free credit. And so actually a couple of, quite a few months worth, that's probably say a year's worth of hosting has been paid for by people clicking on that link and then, you know, buying and using stuff. So thank you. And then there's the more traditional, you know, becoming a Patreon. So Patreon is a really good way. You basically become a patron of the show. That's where it gets its name from. You pledge a small dollar amount per show. There will be exactly two shows every month, one Apple, one photography. So if you'd like, give me $2 a month, pledge one. If you want to give me $10 a month, pledge five. You get the idea. The reason this works is because all of your little pledges are bulked together into one transaction. So if you support 10 podcasts, your 10 little pledges are taken from you in one transaction. So there's one set of transaction fees. And then all of the different people who pledge me a small dollar amount, that's one transaction from Patreon to me. So again, the fees are on one transaction. And that's a really efficient way for people to give small dollar amounts without being hammered on fees. And it also means regular monthly income because bills have this terrible habit of arriving regularly and monthly and the patreon income has this wonderful habit of arriving regularly and monthly and my goal in life no my goal in podcasting life is to have the whole crater by the monthly bills exactly filled by the income from the monthly patreon and you know it's not perfectly in balance but it's close and that makes me extremely happy so long may that last uh, but of course, there are one-off things, right? There, I need to buy software from time to time. I need to buy hardware from time to time. A, it breaks, and B, I just want to improve things sometimes. So that's where the final way of supporting the show financially comes in, which is the PayPal button. This is a really good way of giving one-off larger donations efficiently. So PayPal is terrible for giving me a dollar. It's great for giving me $10. It's fine for giving me $5. And anything above $10 is really, really good at. And I don't expect anyone to give that kind of money on any sort of regular basis right but if you have been listening to the show for years and you're thinking yeah you know something actually do get some value from this maybe click the paypal button once and throw me an amount of money once and that would be extremely well appreciated but again just tweeting about the show viewing the show on itunes telling an actual real world friend all of that is supporting the show sending me some constructive criticism it's a really proactive way of supporting the show. It takes time and effort on your part to write great, you know, constructive criticism. And I really appreciate it. It really helps me do a better job. So that is also supporting the show. So all of you who've ever supported the show in any way, 
genuinely thank you. Well, I've rattled on long enough. Remember, let's-talk.ie. Until next time, happy snapping. You're listening to another great podcast in the MyMac Podcasting Network. Hi, this is Dave Ginsberg. I'm the host of In Touch with iOS, a podcast that talks about iPhone, iPad, Apple Watch, Apple TV, and anything related to those technologies. Um, with my along with my co-host Warren Sklar, um, we in depth with a lot of great things that relates to iOS and and its technologies. I'd love to give you to give it a listen. Uh, you can find us at intouchwithios.com or we are in Apple Podcasts or any uh, podcatcher will be able to find us. Um, but uh, give us a listen. We'd love to have you listening to uh, those great technologies and relating to iOS. Thanks. Thanks.